Tia Brewer. Tia, come on up here. I'm looking forward to hearing from Tia. Uh, the way that uh, I came across Tia is this. Um, Linda Shaper had uh, asked Jackie and me to go to a uh, parish nurse slash... Uh, can you put it under here? Yeah. A, a parish nurse... Uh, ministers meeting and it was at uh, Marion General Hospital and we really didn't know anything that was going to be going on other than uh, Jefferson Street Barbecue was uh, serving the, the food so I knew I wanted to go um, and it was good but whenever we got there, there they had two speakers uh, that day at this meeting and Tia was was one of those speakers and I was just so impressed with her what she had to share and uh, I, I just felt uh, an unctioning that we needed to have her come and speak to our congregation. There's some of you that, that know Tia. She was a former attorney in Marion, and she'll tell you why that that's uh, former. Um, but Tia, I just want you to feel free this morning to share your testimony with us, and I know the Lord's going to bless you. He's going to bless us as well. Can you all hear me? I feel a lot like Madonna right now, but without, like, the superstar thing going on. So <laughs> it's a little bit awkward. So I've not done this before. So I'm super grateful to Pastor for having me and for all of you for being so inviting this morning. Um, and I've had an unction in this morning, too. So um, I'm not really sure where God's going to take this, but I've kind of been praying on it and um, listening to a lot of music and... There you go. That's always a good sign, right, to get the boom from the sky. So, um, yeah, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about two booms. I'm not sure what that means. Um, we'll figure it out, I guess, um, if anybody knows. Um, all right, so, yes, my name is Tia Brewer, and, yes, I am a recovering attorney. Um, I say recovering attorney because I was both a former attorney uh, by trade and I'm also in recovery. So um, I've been in recovery since May 26th, 2017, praise God. Um, and it was a long journey to get to that date. And it's been an even longer journey over the last two years to get to where I am right now, standing in front of all of you. So um, if y'all would just bow your heads for a minute, I'd like to pray before I speak because that would just help me a lot and I think um, it's important. So, dear God, I just ask you today to bless the hearts and minds of the people in front of me. Um, bless me, Lord, and bless my words. Direct my words and help me speak your word to everyone here. Let me share your life and your love and your grace with all of these people. And Lord, if you can just touch one heart and one mind and one soul today and bring them to you and to your table of grace. Lord, that's all I ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. All right. So I'm 47 years old. I'll be 48 in September. Um, I grew up in a great family. Um, a lot of times when people hear about people in recovery, right, they assume that there's some tragic start to their life, and that's not that's not my story. My story starts out in a two-parent home with a good education, was taken to church every Sunday, was given opportunities, got to participate in extracurricular activities, um, had 
everything in life kind of set out before me by my parents. Um, They loved me. I wasn't abused. Um, So the reason I talk about that um, anytime I share my story is because addiction doesn't know any kind of genre or family life or person or color or financial background. It doesn't care. Substance use disorder will sneak into anyone's house at anyone at any particular time and snatch someone up. It's like other diseases, right? So um, that's why I talk about that part of my story. Um, I did not drink or drug when I was young. Um, I grew up in a pretty sheltered environment, didn't do a lot of things outside of the purview of my parents. Um, thank goodness, or who knows how I'd have gone hog wild early on. So um, I got to stay pretty close to home um, with a lot of rules and, and oversight and direction from my folks. And that led to a lot of good things in my life. Um, I was an outstanding student. I had opportunities, like I said, you know, I, I swam from the time I was six until I graduated high school. Um, I ran track. I ran I did cheerleading, I was on student council, um, and all of those things happened because of the opportunities and the um, upbringing that my parents provided to me. Um, So yeah, again, didn't really party, drink, drug, any of that nonsense um, when I was in junior high or high school. A lot of times people talk about their stories and it started early on, mine did not. Um, The thing that I know now that I didn't know then about myself is that probably from the time I was in late middle school, I was noticing that I didn't connect to people, right? I felt different. I felt like I didn't fit in. So I would find ways to fit in. I would find ways to get noticed or be part of and I don't know why that was the way it was. And I've, I've racked my brain and I've talked to my therapist and I've prayed over it. And what I figured out is this, it doesn't really matter why I wasn't connecting to people. The truth of the matter was I just didn't. The other thing I know now that I didn't know then is that I had this enormous hole inside of me that needed filled up with something. And I didn't know what that was. I had been taken to church. I had been taught about God and a relationship with him. Um, I went to Catholic school until I was a freshman in high school. So it wasn't that the knowledge wasn't presented to me about what that hole was or what needed filled up inside of it. I just didn't know what I didn't know. For whatever reason, Tia didn't understand how important throughout my life a relationship with God would become and how important it was and how necessary it was for me to be healthy, to have a relationship with God. I didn't know that then. I know that now. So lucky, <laughs> lucky, lucky girl. Um, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot this week is grace. Um, I'm going to play a song for you uh, here in a little while that's just been on my heart today. But all week I've been thinking about grace And when I think about grace and when I think about my relationship with God, I think about unearned, undeserved favor, right? And I think back to when I was younger, 
and through junior high and high school and college. And I never appreciated the fact that all of the good things in my life, all of those things that made me shiny or helped me fit in, you know, my academic success, my success in sports, my success uh, making social groups, that sort of thing. Um, later on in college, you know, academic success. Later on, a career and a family and stuff and material things. The whole time all of those things were happening, I kept patting myself on the back. Like I was somehow responsible. Like I was somehow the shining star that had made all of these things happen and was never giving credit anywhere else, particularly and most importantly, I wasn't giving any credit to God because I didn't have a relationship with God. So I go to college. I'm on fire to go be a lawyer. I knew from the time I was little I wanted to be a lawyer. So I go to college, and I hit my freshman year of college, and my first Friday at college, there's this big blowout party in one of the dorms. And so I went to the party and went in Rome, do as Romans do, right? Well, everybody was drinking and partying, um, and I thought, I'm almost 19 years old. I'm doing all right. I got a full ride to college. I'm going to party it up tonight, see what all this is about, right? I'm a good kid. I kept telling myself, I'm a good kid. So I drank that Friday, um, and I will tell you something. From the moment I took my first drink, um, I didn't drink like normal people. I always drank until it was all gone. I was an all-gone drinker. Um, if we ran out and the liquor stores were still open or the bars were still open, I would go get more and I would drink until the opportunity to drink was all gone. Now, at first, I didn't do that all the time. I didn't do that every night. I didn't do that every weekend. But as time went on, alcohol became more and more a regular part of my life. And it was never one of those things where, you know, I had dinner with people and they have a glass of wine. And I just scratch my head. I'm like, I don't know how people do that, have a glass of wine with dinner. That was never my story. Um, pretty quickly after I started drinking, I started smoking marijuana um, and lots of it. And I really thought that I had found the answer to all of my social anxiety problems. So yeah, I started smoking marijuana, and again, um, did that pretty regularly, not all the time. And alcohol and marijuana were kind of just a standard part of my daily life. Um, you know, pick it up when I wanted to, and marijuana, I picked it up every day pretty much. Um, but had a lot of success still in my life. Was on Dean's List and was doing well, um, you know, in school, and later on was able to go to law school and have kids and get married and have a house and cars and stuff. So the idea that alcohol and marijuana were a problem never really came into mind. And nobody outside of me was really saying much other than, wow, Tia drinks a lot. Um, and wow, Tia drinks or smokes a lot of weed. What is going on? You know, but no negative side effects, so really nobody hollering and screaming at me to stop those that, that knew. Um, went through um, a pretty traumatic, I say pretty traumatic, a real traumatic event when I was 19. Um, and I remember making a conscious decision at that point 
um, to deny God. And so, um, in combination with the alcohol and, and marijuana, and now an absolute denial of the presence of God in the world at all, um, I was kind of just afloat in life. Um, the outside looked real shiny, and inside I was slowly um, and systematically dying. Um, I found it more and more difficult to have meaningful relationships with people. Um, I blamed that on them. I blamed that on their incapacity to be who I needed them to be or who I expected them to be um, or if they would just listen to me, who I told them to be. Um, because I liked to direct the show. I liked to be in control. I liked to say, this is what's going to happen, and then make it happen. And those that didn't fall in line were not useful in my life. So relationships became more and more difficult. Um, and I became more and more self-absorbed and egotistical and full of Tia. Um, because really, that was all that was left to fill myself up with. I had denied God. I had pushed everyone in my life away. I had told everybody that I was great all on my own. And so there I was, alone. So yeah, so I was just, I had told everybody I didn't need anyone. And there I was, all alone, and still wondering why I was so miserable and disgusted with life. And I would say constantly, all I want is peace. Why does nobody understand? All I want is peace. Well, for goodness sakes, here I am, a basket of chaos, hollering to everybody else that all I wanted was peace. And then I wondered, what on earth? So fast forward, I got divorced when I was 36. I was with my ex-husband for 18 years, three beautiful children, um, 45, so 36 to 44, um, I think I tried to reinvent my youth um, is what I did. And if you know anything about your late 30s, reinventing youth is not really a possibility. It doesn't look good when you try to reinvent youth in your late 30s, particularly when you have three children and a career and responsibilities. Um, it looks kind of foolish, but I had no idea that that's how it looked. I thought I had my stuff together and that everybody respected me and that, boy, Tia Brewer's name really meant something. Yeah, it certainly meant something, but not what I thought it meant. Um, so I started to be out and about a whole lot more. Um, and when I mean out and about, in all the wrong places with all the wrong people. And this is why and I know this now, and I didn't know this then, but you don't know what you don't know till you know it. So I was feeling worse and worse and worse about myself. I was feeling emptier and emptier and emptier inside. So in order to build myself up and make myself feel better, I started to hang around with people and go to places that I felt were lower than me. Well, if you do that through enough cycles, or at least if I did that through enough cycles, I had to keep lowering my standards because my behavior started to get worse and worse and worse. And the risks that I took started to get greater and greater and greater. And the dirty, rotten, despicable things that I would do to make myself feel better got lower and lower and lower and lower. 
So I had to keep clicking down about who I was with and where I was at so that I could still feel superior, so I could still be Tia Brewer. So as that thing starts to spiral, I'm still scratching my head as to the misery and destruction that's happening around me and why everybody just can't understand how hard my life is. If they would just understand everything that I've been through, everything I do for everybody else, right? Poor Tia. (laughs) Poor, poor Tia. Yeah. So I'd been around cocaine a lot throughout the years, but had never really messed with it. Um, It wasn't going to be my thing. I didn't like the way it looked on other people, or so I thought. Well, for whatever reason, um, boredom, the people I was hanging around with, how I felt about myself, arrogance had a lot to do with it. I decided to try cocaine when I was 44, almost 45 years old. Um, Bad idea. Don't recommend it. (laughs) Don't go there. It's no fun. Um, Long story short, over the next um, couple of years, my life started to spiral completely out of control. Um, It was no longer about alcohol. It was no longer about marijuana. It was no longer about my career. It was no longer about the stuff that I needed to take care of. It was no longer about my family. Um, It was really no longer about anything other than get more cocaine. And it's hard sometimes to say that out loud Um, But I also know something that I didn't know then, which is that's the nature of the disease of substance use disorder, right? That's also the nature of my spiritual disease, which was the lack of a relationship with God, right? Cocaine was the only thing that I could get that woo out of. You know, I was standing up here this morning And I had a woo moment, and I'm completely sober. (laughs) How about that, right? Had I known then what I know now, I'd have found my high somewhere else a lot sooner. But I didn't. And so my life turned, as most people that suffer with substance use disorder, um, my life turned to dust. Um, So our kids are now, 24, 23, and 11. Yes, they were all with my ex-husband, and um, we had two at the beginning and one at the end. So, um, yeah, they're awesome. But my disease and my spiritual emptiness had taken me to a place where um, May 26th, 2017, I was arrested. Um, I was drug out of my basement. Yes, my basement where I had been for three days, in the same clothes, smoking crack. Hmm. About six weeks prior to that, um, our son, I dropped him off at school that morning, and I started to get high. That was my routine at that point, April of 2017. And my mother was his principal. And the end of school came, and over the course of all of my children's lives, I had never missed a school event. 
I had never missed picking anybody up. Nobody had missed school because I couldn't take them. April 2017, my mother called me, called my phone about 3.30 in the afternoon. Where are you? Jax is standing here waiting on you to pick him up from school. Well, what I couldn't tell my mother was that I was standing in my basement with a crack pipe in my hand, higher than a kite, paranoid beyond all paranoia, hearing voices, seeing things that weren't real, and trying to have a conversation with her about why I wasn't there to pick my son up from school. And I said, oh my gosh, I lost track of time. I'll be right there. I did not go. About an hour later, um, I got a phone call from my ex-husband saying, I have Jax, um, don't call, don't try to see him. He's not coming home until you get your mm, together. I hung up the phone, cried. Why, why, why? And then I went and got high. And I got high every day for the next six weeks until May 26th. I would love to be able to tell you that the loss of my son sparked something inside of me to change. It did not. That is a hard truth. That is a hard truth. But an important truth for me, because I've heard over all of the years that I practiced, before I ever recognized that I was an addict or an alcoholic, I've heard over all the years, if they just loved their children, don't they love their children? Why don't they stop? Don't you love your family? Can't you see the pain that your family is going through? Our middle daughter came to my front door about a week after I had left her brother at school because someone had called her and told her that I had overdosed. That was not true, but that's what my daughter had heard. And she knocked on my house door, and I answered the door high and in psychosis and unable to talk because I was nonverbal at that point. And she started bawling. I thought you were dead. I came to see if you were alive. Someone told me you were dead. And I couldn't speak. I just stood there, stupefied, in psychosis, wishing that I could get away from that door, not at all able to feel the pain that my daughter was experiencing at that moment, thinking that she was going to come and find the coroner at my house. That did not change what I was doing. The pain on her face, the sorrow, the fear did not change what I was doing or who I had become. So May 26th, the sheriff's department, after about four hours um, outside my house and me watching them on cameras, 
um, and thinking I must be imagining it at all because I imagined a lot of things that weren't real at that point, um, broke through my door and carried me out of my house um, into the back of a sheriff's car. Now, this wasn't the first time they had carried me out of my house during the past two months prior to that. Twice I had been taken out of my house and taken to the hospital um, because I was nonverbal. Someone had called for a wellness check. They came. I couldn't talk. I couldn't answer questions. I didn't look very good. I looked um, kind of like Skeletor, if you remember Hercules and the character Skeletor. Um, I was emaciated. I was gray. Um, I had black circles under my eyes. My skin was not the greatest because I was smoking crack. Um, I was a train wreck. I would go like a week and eat a handful of Cheez-Its. So was really kind of on a pathway um, to death. But both the times that I had been carried out of my house and to the hospital, um, I had talked my way out of the hospital eventually because they got me sobered up enough to talk to somebody from Access. Um, that's Cornerstone's mental health evaluation. And I was able then to walk out of the hospital May 26, I thought I was going to the hospital. Nope. <laughs> um, I was put in the back of the sheriff's car and taken to the Grant County Jail, and I got to stay there as a guest. Um, they took real good care of me. They didn't give me drugs and alcohol, which was a bonus. Um, and... I got to sit in solitary confinement for 22 days. I was real angry about that. And now I know something else that I didn't know then. I had been proclaiming for years how good I was on my own, how much I didn't need anybody, how impossible it was that God existed. <laughs> I know now... <laughs> My God's kind of clever, <laughs> right? He was going to show me just how alone felt. You're good on your own, girl. Get in there and do you for a while. <laughs> and so that's what I did for 22 days. And then I got moved up to the block. Um, that's the main population for those of you who have not experienced jail. And um, was there a total of 56 days. And I had gone to court a couple of times. And um, I was arrested on felony cocaine charges, possession of marijuana, possession of paraphernalia, and most importantly, and the one with the most teeth, as if the felony wasn't enough, um, I was charged with contempt. Because I was an officer of the court and because I had been a knucklehead, for weeks at this point. I wasn't showing up to court anymore when I was supposed to be there. Um, I was skipping hearings and calling the court office most of the time and making up some nonsense excuse that no one believed anymore about why I couldn't be there that day. Um, so the contempt charge had some teeth because the contempt did not come with a bond. So I wasn't able to bond out of jail. I told you my God's clever. Um, and the judge that had had me arrested, um, I had been a public defender in his court for many, many years. And not only did that judge, but several 
all, I say several, all of our other judges um, had joined together to file a disciplinary complaint against me um, in combination with now the contempt charge. So the judge was under no requirement to give me a bond so that I had to stay in jail until the judge decided um, to let me out. He had six months to work with, 180 days, non-suspendable, no credit time, jail time that he could work with. Um, so day 56, I was offered treatment again. They had offered it to me a couple of times before, um, and I said no, that I would just stay in jail um, because I was angry. I had been to treatment the year prior um, after showing up to court in psychosis, I had gone to Alabama for 12 weeks, and um, 12 weeks, yeah, that's true. Most people get 28 days. I got 12 weeks, um, and I went with the idea that I would do what I needed to do so that I could come back to my life. Not make any changes, just come back to my life and not smoke crack. That was on the agenda that first 12 weeks, um, and that lasted for about nine months, um, so I get the opportunity, day 56, to go to treatment again. And this time it was south of Indianapolis. And I didn't want to be in jail anymore. I would love to tell you that I really wanted to stop using drugs at that point, but I did not. My girls had called um, the jail and told them to tell me not to call, not to write, that they did not want to hear from me. Um, I already told you what happened with my son, so I was not able to talk to or see him. My parents, who up until this point, even through the first 12 weeks of Alabama, had been the plethora of um, codependents, right, had facilitated um, helping me as much as they could, both financially and emotionally, um, and had offered to do everything and anything under the sun for me to be well. Um, this time, um, when my dad came to see me in jail, he told me I was going to have to figure it out. Um, tough. I was angry. But necessary. And this is why. So I go down to Terra Treatment Center, and I'm angry when I get there. And I'm also still, still having some psychosis. Um, intrusive thoughts is what they call it. So my reality is kind of split between not being able to read or listen to the radio or watch television or have conversation to these lucid moments where my brain was starting to normalize again because the chemicals had been removed. And so my brain was able to heal. Um, on Sundays down at treatment, you had an option. You had an option to go to church or you had an option to stay back and watch a video um, at the facility. Um, so I had, because I've already told you, you know, God and I weren't on the same team at that time. Um, I had decided to stay back and watch the video the first two Sundays I was there. The third Sunday I was there, um, I didn't want to watch a video. And a lot of the girls that I was with in treatment kept talking about this church that they were going to. And, oh, the music is fantastic and they have donuts and Donuts were like a commodity while I was in treatment because that wasn't like one of the main foods you got and certainly wasn't in jail. Um, so, you know, donuts, music, the girls that I had started to build some relationships with, 
So I get ready and I go to church. And I, I told Pastor Ron this morning, when I walked in here, there is no coincidence in my life anymore. When I walked in here, all I could think of was that first church that I walked into um, while I was in treatment because it was set up like this. It had the big screen, it had the chairs, you know, not real imposing, right? Because I was, I, re, I was raised in the Catholic church, so um, this was not the kind of church that I was used to walking into. And I felt more so relaxed, you know? I felt like, okay, nobody's gonna know just how bad I am and ask me to leave, right? I don't feel like I stick out like a sore thumb so much. So when I walked in here this morning, um, I really got to thinking about that day, that, that Sunday that I walked into that church. And I sat in the very back, of course. I was lucky I hadn't like evaporated when I walked through the door. That's what I thought was gonna happen, you know? Um, but I was still there kicking. And so I'm in back and they were playing all this praise music. And again, I, I had been in FCA choir, so I had experienced other churches, but it had been many, many years since I had been in a church. I had no idea church music could be so phenomenal and so on fire and that people would be singing and praising and excited about their relationship with God. And so I'm sitting in back and I'm looking at all these people and I'm like, I don't know what these people are on. Whatever it is, I want some of it. Like, I want to look and feel like these people look and feel. I'm looking at the girls next to me, you know, they're praising. I start singing. I can't even tell you what song was on, but I started singing it. I didn't know the words, but I sang. I do that a lot still. Um, and I'm sitting back there. I can't tell you how I got to the front of that church. I've thought about it. I've, I've thought about it a lot. I don't remember the walk. I don't remember the walk, but I walked up to the area about right here, and there was, a, there was like a, a rail, a, a kneeling bench is what we call them in the Catholic Church, right? A kneeler. And the band was playing, and the, they were all singing, everybody out here singing, and other people are showing up up front. And I'm standing there, and I put my hand up. Now, I was not raised to put my hand up in church, right? That meant a question, <laughs> right? Excuse me, priest, <laughs> could I ask a question? No, that's not, right? My hand goes up, and the music is playing, and I feel this heat come down through me, all right? And you're going to have to excuse me if I get upset when I talk about this. It's not upset. It's just how powerful that moment was. I feel this heat pour down through me, all right? From the top of my head, it feels as though I'm on fire. I know now that was the Holy Spirit, all right? The Holy Spirit washed down through me that day. The other thing that the Holy Spirit did as I'm sitting there crying out to God to take this pain away from me, is God reached down through the Holy Spirit 
into the belly of me and plucked my addiction out of me. And when I say plucked it out, I mean plucked it out because from that moment forward, I no longer had the desire to drink or drug again. And I haven't since, right? I didn't know a doggone thing about the Holy Spirit when I walked into the church that day. I know now a whole bunch about what God's grace looks like. Okay? When I think about God's grace, when I think about the unearned, undeserved favor of God that's been given to me, what I know as I stand in front of you with everything in me is that God was always there. God was with me in jail. God was with me in the basement while I was smoking crack. God was with me when I was in fifth and sixth and seventh grade, wondering who I was and why I didn't fit in. God was with me that night when I was 19, right? God was always there. People, see, this is where I had things messed up. And I believed it when people said, well, if God was real, my grandma wouldn't have died. Well, if God was so powerful... I wouldn't be suffering with this cancer. I would say, if God was real, criminals wouldn't be able to do things to me that they did to me that night. Where was God? God was there. See, where I'd gotten things messed up was, the other part of my relationship with God is that I have to acknowledge it. I have to acknowledge God. I don't get to cry out to God not having any idea who he is or who I'm talking to. I don't get to have a relationship or the benefits of a relationship with God without some reciprocity from me, i.e. faith, willingness to learn, and the ability to turn my will and my life over to him. Throughout all those events, right, where I thought God had left me and that there couldn't be a God and why God and how dare he let this happen if he's real, not once did I ever fall to my knees at the altar and say, please, God, I believe you. I believe you are all-powerful, all-knowing, always here. I will do wherever, whatever you lead me to do. I never did that. And then I scratched my head as to why I wasn't getting any of the benefits of a relationship from God. There's work I have to do every single day to stay in recovery, right? The first thing I have to do every day is to remind myself, because myself can go crazy sometimes, and acknowledge that not a single day starts or ends without God in control of it, okay? We have this thing in my program called the third step prayer where you essentially acknowledge that God can take care of your life and your will. He will take care of your life and your will. Oh, and I'm willing to let him. (laughs) That's the important part for me. I have to be willing to let God do his thing in my life every day. God's got to move. (laughs) God's always got to move. 
right? He is the ultimate player. There's nothing he can't do. I believe that because I'm standing here. I did not die. My relationships with my family have been restored. My son is back in my custody. I'm hireable. I got a job, right? Two years ago, let's be honest, less than a year ago, I had a do not hire every time I applied at a job. Cracker Barrel would not hire Tia Brewer. Okay, that's a true story. Um, Yeah, I could not be a server at Cracker Barrel. And I wanted to be a server at Cracker Barrel. But um, those things matter because I know now that I have to do what I'm supposed to do with my relationship with God every single day because that's the only reason that I'm living in his grace right now. That's the only reason I get to enjoy the benefits of the undeserved, unearned favor of God. That's my life. My life is a story of unearned, undeserved favor. First from my parents, and the whole time by God, once I was willing to acknowledge him, once I was willing to give him credit instead of patent tea on the back, once I was willing to say, you're in control, thus, you get the praise. So here I am, right, on fire. Um, I'm working as a peer support specialist at Milestone now through Grant Blackford. Um, Peer support specialist. Didn't even know this was a thing, guys. Peer support specialist is somebody who has lived with either substance use disorder or mental illness, depending on where you want to work. Um, who then goes through training and goes out and shares their experience, their strength, their hope um, with other individuals still suffering with active addiction um, or mental health issues if you're on that side of things, Um, and then try to connect with and hold and walk with people um, while they get into some program of recovery. And that looks different for a whole lot of people. I'm super blessed to be here this morning, and um, I've quit wondering why things happen. Um, It's all part of the plan. I believe that it's all part of the plan now. Um, That peace that I always talked about, all I want is peace, right? I have it. I received it at the altar. Um, I work to keep it. I build my relationship with God. I get into his word. I share my testimony. I talk to other people who know a whole lot more about faith and a spiritual relationship with God than I do, and I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to be still. That's a first. Um, I'm willing to be silent and listen and hear what they're telling me about how to build and grow and develop that relationship with my God deeper and deeper and deeper every day. That's it. And I got a song for y'all whenever pastor says that they can play it. Thank you. Yes, praise the Lord. Now, I've just felt this unction. We're going to play this video here in just a minute, but I I had this unction. There's probably only one or maybe two people in this entire room that can uh, that have experienced some of the things that Tia has experienced. But here's what I was hearing in my spirit that I need to ask you. What's your addiction? It may be 
you're addicted to television, or you're addicted to, t to caffeine, or you're addicted to gossip, or you're addicted to uh, your own desires and pleasures that's really not necessarily affecting anybody else. But I'm supposed to ask you, what's your, what's your addiction? Is it small? Is it maybe medium? Or do you have something more serious? Let's all right now just take a moment and ponder what your addiction, what is my addiction? Let's just take a moment and think about that. And then while you're doing that, then ask for forgiveness. Repent of that and turn from it and make the decision today. I will not entertain that any longer. Let's take a moment. Just lift your worship right there in this moment.
Aren't you thankful for God's grace? Father, we bless you today. We thank you for Tia. We ask your hand of blessing upon her. Thank you for her recovery. There's others in recovery. And I just pray, Father, that we would all be totally set free from our addictions. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. It's so abounding. Hallelujah. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We're so thankful in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for those who can stay and help tear down. God bless you. Have a great day.